This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is from the sixth Sunday of Easter 2018. We just finished a four-week series on Fully Sacramental. Next week, we'll begin our three great feasts of Ascension, Pentecost, and Trinity Sunday. So today, we're simply receiving the lectionary texts, and I'll be preaching out of the epistle. So 1 John, which is page 1023 in your bulletin. So you can open there now. A common question, what did I say, bulletin? It's kind of like a bulletin. Your Bible from the church. Okay, if you, uh, if you have one of our church Bibles, it's page 1023. A very common question that all of us ask. You definitely are asking it by the time you're in your, your mid-20s, if you haven't already been asking it. And then as I understand, you just keep asking it for the rest of your life. And here's the question. Am I doing it right? Have I figured it out? Do I got it? Do I know what I'm doing? And whether it's your job, family, relationships, raising kids, finances, doesn't matter, life in general, am I doing it right? And how do I know? It's the same with following God. How do I know that, that I really belong to God, that, I, that I've got it and that I understand what's the most important thing? Well, thankfully, God loves us enough that he's going to tell us. He's going to be super clear. He's, he said, let me tell you what the most important thing is. And that's what our passage from 1 John today does. Through the apostle, God tells us, here is the most important thing you need to know. Love one another. It's a theme that is all throughout the epistle of 1 John. He repeats it over and over again. Love one another. So we know that we belong to God if our whole aim in life is to care for others. That's the one thing that we need to know and understand. If our mindset is, if we have the mentality, I exist for you, I am here for you. It's not what can you do for me, it's what can I do for you. If that's our mindset, that's the mentality, that's the mantra that we carry with us wherever we go, whatever we're doing, then we know that we understand who God is. Because that's what God does. All right, so let's dig into that. Take a look at verse 11 there in chapter 4 of 1 John. Beloved, if God so loved us, he just explained all the ways that Jesus Christ came to this earth and loved us, gave his life for our life. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to, what does it say? Love him back, right? No, that's not what it says. Look, look in your Bible. Verse 11, if God so loved us, not we should love him back, but now we should love others. That's the most important thing. Isn't it important to love God? We'll get to that in a minute, but John says you should love one another. If you've received the love of God, love those around you. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is made perfect in us. In other words, no one has seen the Father in heaven. But if you spend your life and spend your strength for the sake of others, if you carry that mentality of what can I do for you, then the love of the Father is in you. He's made his home in you. And that love in you grows and it matures until you and all those around you begin to look more and more like your Father in heaven. So even though we have not seen the Father, we have seen the Father. We see him in one another as we grow in love. 
So jump down to verse 19, 20, and 21. The end of this passage, John picks up the same theme. He reiterates it, hammers it home. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Well, who do we love? We love God, right? God loved us, and so we love him back. No, that's not what he's saying. In this context, he's saying we love others. That's who is the subject of our love. They're the object of our love. We love others because he first loved us. That's what verse 19 is saying. We are set free because we're secure in the love that we've received from him. We know that he's going to take care of us. Now we're free to take care of others. We love because he first loved us. In verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. And now he goes back to this theme of God who is unseen. He says, look, if you don't love your brother or your sister who's right in front of you, you're kidding yourself if you think you love God who you cannot see. So the real test, do you actually love God? Do you know God? Do you belong to him? Well, are you loving the brother or sister right in front of you? And he brings it all home in verse 21. This commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, okay, yes, we are supposed to love God. That is the first and great commandment. And we love God by bringing our praises, our thanksgiving, by giving our whole life, submitting to him. But what John is saying, and this is the incredible truth of this passage, the way that you love God most is by loving your brothers and sisters. That's how you show love for God. Do you want to know what the most important thing is? It's love one another. Now, what kind of love are we talking about? This is important because you're driving down the street and you see those little signs in the yard that say, love everyone always. And you think, that's nice. What do they actually mean? Because love has been co-opted and diffused and it means everything and it means nothing. So what does love mean according to God? Because verse 7 says love is from God. He's the author. He is the one who said This is what love is. I'm going to define love because I actually, in my nature, in my being, I am love. So God gets to define love and tell us what it is like. And when we find out what love is like, according to God, we'll find out, yeah, there are some things similar of what most of the world says, and there are some things that are drastically different. The love of God, we have to learn it from him. He defines it. So love that is in this passage and and throughout most of the New Testament, especially when it's talking about the love of God, it's the Greek word agape. Agape love means this care for others, the self-sacrificing, self-denying, selfless devotion to others. The mindset, not, not what's in it for me, what's in it for you? What can I do for you? How can I serve you? That's agape love. So I'm going to go through just a few things that this agape love is and and isn't. We're going to talk about this love, and then later we'll we'll talk about how do we actually live it out. So first thing, agape love. It is not primarily affection. It is action. Agape love is not first and foremost feelings and action, or feeling and and affection. It is action, doing something. So look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. So so John is saying, God is defining love for us by sending his only son into the world that we might live through him. So he sent his son. He gave his son. He did something, an action, not just affection. Now, of course, affection is not bad. There's nothing wrong with affection. And, And affection is actually part of this agape love 
It would be crazy to think that God would, would give everything and, and be totally for us and yet also be kind of cool, detached, and not really all that interested in us. No. God loves us. He also likes us. He, he does have affection for us. But primarily, agape love is not affection. It is action. And so over in chapter 3, John, again, he's, he's hitting on his theme. He's repeating himself. He says, this is how we know what love is. In verse 16 of chapter 3, that Jesus laid down his life for us. So we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he goes on to say what that looks like. He says, describes, if you see someone who has a need and you have the ability to meet that need and you don't, you do not have the love of God in you. It's very, very clear. So let us not love in words only, empty words, he says, but let us, let us love with action, in deeds, and in truth. So love is primarily action. So my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Simon, he's been learning to ride the pedal bike this last week, and it's all he's thinking about. And every day when I got home from work this week, he met me at the door. Can we go out in the driveway, and can I ride the pedal bike? Because he still needs me to hold it to get him started. And every day I'd have to say, sorry, I got to get dinner ready, or sorry, I've got something else, or not now, I've got to go back to work in a little bit. But I would say, I love you. Give him a hug and a kiss, as much affection as I could give him in that moment. He doesn't want the affection. He wants dad out in the driveway helping him ride his pedal bike. So finally, the last day of the week, I said, I don't have anything else to do. Dinner's in 15 minutes. Let's go out in the driveway. And you would have thought Christmas had come early. That was love to Simon. Uh, funny enough, like a month ago, I was tucking him in at night, and I thought, I'm, I'm just going to pour affection into this guy. So I said, Simon, I love you so much. I'm so glad that you are a part of this family. It wouldn't be the same without you. You're a special boy, and I'm so glad that you're my son. And he looked up at me, and he said, sometimes when I drink too much milk or water, it goes up my nose. <laughs> So verbal affection in the world of a three-and-a-half-year-old, it's not yet registering. It will someday. (laughs) But for him, love is meet me in the driveway and hold on to my bike so I don't fall over. So agape love is not primarily affection. It's primarily action. Number two, similarly, we think about love in a sentimental way. I love you, lovey-dovey. Love, agape love, is not sentimental. It is sacrificial. This kind of love gives until it hurts. And indeed, in the example of Jesus Christ, it gives until it kills. It's not sentimental. It is sacrificial. Do you imagine that when Jesus is agonizing and dripping drops of bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he's feeling lots of warm fuzzies for the world at that point? No, his feeling was anguish and agony and sorrow, and yet he was loving the world precisely in that moment. And if you look at verse 10, again, John is defining love. He's saying this is what love looks like. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation, it means sacrifice. It means atoning sacrifice. The idea that I'm going to take on your debts and pay them myself. All right, today is Wheaton College graduation, so I'm sure we've got a few seniors and their families with us this morning. Congratulations. It would be like if one of us came up to one of those seniors and said, hey, look, the first three years after college can be a little rough. Why don't you give me your student loans? I will pay them for you. 
And you're all saying like, yes, yes, please. Please love like that. I will take on your debts. The Bible says that Jesus took on the punishment that belonged to us when he died on the cross. He took the responsibility for everything done wrong in the world, even though he himself had done nothing wrong. That's why the Bible says, by his wounds, we are healed. He took on our love and sacrificed himself. He took on our debt. Now, you may not take on the college loans of of a senior, but giving the gift of money or sharing your possessions is one of the most important ways that we show love. In fact, uh, I've heard it described as the foundational spiritual discipline. Why? Because to say God is love is to say God is generous. God's heart of love is the heart of sharing, of giving, of generosity. And if you don't give money, if you're tight with your money, it means you don't understand what God is like. One, because it means you don't trust him that he'll take care of you, but also means you don't understand this joy in giving. So share your possessions. Give to those who need more than you do, and you will love like he loves. Love is not sentimental. It's sacrificial. All right, number three. This agape love is supremely others-focused. So look again at verse 10. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. When he was getting nothing from us, when there was no reciprocity, he went after us and said, no, I, I love you even though you don't love me back right now. I'm so focused on you. My entire life, the whole reason Jesus came to the world and died was for us. It wasn't for himself. He didn't need to do that. There was nothing that he needed. He wanted to show his love. He was so others-focused. Here's an extreme example. On the night that he was betrayed and arrested, the worst night of his life, when he's in that anguish and the sorrow of that bloody sweat, the soldiers come to the garden, and when they first confront Jesus, the disciples rise up, and Peter actually cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus, in that moment, with all that's before him and all that's weighing on him, he's so others-focused. What does he do? He reaches out and he heals the ear of that man who's come to kill him. That's wild. That's crazy. Others focus. So when you're in the pressure cooker, the deadlines are coming, you're falling behind, there are more things on your plate than you can handle, and you have the feeling, I'm supposed to be in about five places at once, right? Amen. I know that's your life. I know you feel that way. What are you thinking? Are you thinking, hey, whose ear around here can I heal? No. You're thinking what I'm thinking, which is, how can I do the bare minimum, just do what I need to do, and then get out of here and on to the next thing, because I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And I'm so focused on myself. This was one of my great uh, lessons for Lent this year is the Lord just showed me, Brett, you're so overwhelmed and you're so anxious about all that you have to do that all you are is focused on your tasks. You're so self-focused. I said, ah, you're right. Even these tasks that are for others, I'm doing them just for myself. Got to get it done. Got to get it done. Hope it goes well. Hope it goes well. I know I'm the only one who suffers from that. But instead, what if we're thinking, who can I bless? Who needs a word of encouragement right now in this moment? How can I, by my words, and even just by my manner, be a fountain of the peace of God? What a gift that would be 
to everybody else out there who's like, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I'm, yes, we're all busy. Can you be a fountain of peace by your words, by your manner? We know that we belong to God when we make it our aim to care for those who are right around us. This is true even to the extent that we love our enemies. So agape love loves our enemies. In our passage here, we see four times throughout these verses the phrase or, or something like it of perfect love. And it's important to know that the word perfect there doesn't mean flawless, doesn't make a mistake, A++. That, that's not perfect. Perfect in the sense of complete, fully mature. And Jesus talks about perfect love in one other place in the Gospels, in, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, look, if you love those who are easy to love, if you love those who love you, what are you doing any different than anybody else? Anything different than, than the rest of the world? No, instead, love even those who are your enemies. Love those who oppose you. Pray for them, they who persecute you. If you do that, then you'll have perfect love. Then your love will be completely mature, and you'll be like your Father in heaven. Again, Jesus shows this on the night that he was betrayed when he washed the feet of the disciples' feet. Do you realize that Judas was still in the room? And he washed the feet of Judas just hours before Judas betrayed him. And on the cross, with his dying breath, he is pardoning and forgiving those who hate him enough that they would rejoice to see his pain and death. In the very moment of their killing him, he is loving them and forgiving them. There's a story inscribed uh, in the Roman catacombs, the Roman tombs where many early Christians are, are buried. So this is a story from um, the time of Christianity in the early centuries. There was a servant named Paulus and a master named Proculus. Paulus was the head servant, so he went with his master Proculus to the slave market one day, and they were there to buy another slave. Paulus looked out, he saw a man, and he pointed, and he said, buy him, buy that one. And Proculus said, no, he's old, he's, he's weak, he will be no good to me. But Paulus insisted, no, buy that one right there, get him. So he did. And from that day forward, Paulus did the work of two men. He did his own work, and he did the work of this old man who truly was too weak to do anything. But not only did he do the, two, the, the work of two men, he served this other man night and day. He waited on him and tended to him to the point where the master, Proculus, came to Paulus and said, oh, okay, uh, who is this guy? I, I trust you, and if you want to act this way, that's fine, but who is this guy? Is he your father who fell into slavery? Is he like an old teacher whom you respect and adore? Paulus said, no. He is my enemy. This is the man who killed my father and sold me and my siblings into slavery. And Proculus, of course, was stunned. He said, how can this be? And Paulus only said, I am a disciple of Christ who taught us to love our enemies. We know we belong to God when we start to love like that. At the beginning, we were asking the question, how do we have assurance that we belong to God? Well, the, the recipients of this letter of 1 John, they were asking a similar question about assurance. 
How do we know that we belong to God? What had happened is recently there had been a massive church split. Some teachers had risen up. They were false teachers and they took away the greater part of the congregation. And those who were left behind, the remnant, were wondering, well, wait a minute, do we have the truth or do they have the truth? They were shooken up. They needed assurance. So the apostle John is writing to them. It's why all throughout the letter he's saying over and over again, you know that you live in the truth. You know that you belong to him. Here's how you know. And so verses 13 all the way down to verse 18, is sort of this litany, this list of assurances. Everything from you have the Spirit, so the signs and the wonders that break out among you, that's, that's a sign. Um, you also have my apostolic witness. He said, I'm the only apostle left at this point. All the others have been killed. But I was there with Jesus, and if I'm saying you're in the truth, you're in the truth. And he goes on, but the climax of this list of assurances comes in verse 16, where he says, here's how you know that you belong to God, because God is love If you live in love, if you abide in his love, then you know that you belong to him. But of course, that raises the question, how do I know that I'm abiding in his love, that I'm living in his love? So he answers that question there in verse 17. Read along. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. How do we know that we're in God's love? The answer, he says, is when our love is perfect, fully mature, and as he is in the world, so are we. So when you're just like Jesus, then you know. Oh, great. So when I'm perfectly others-oriented, always self-sacrificing, giving to the point that it hurts, and willing at any moment to die for those who oppose me, then I have confidence, and I don't need to worry on the day of judgment. Awesome. Actually, now I am worried because just the other day, Simon asked for peanut butter on his toast when I'd already put butter in jelly and I got angry. I said, no. See, love sounds like a nice idea, but to love like God loves, it's hard. In fact, it's the hardest thing in the world. In fact, I would say it is impossible. You can't do it and neither can I. Go to verse 20. John is saying, if we love, or if we say we love God, but we hate our brother, we're we're a liar, brother or sister, we're we're lying. And and we look at that and we say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I I don't hate people. I'm not a mean person. Every single one of us has hatred in our hearts. You all have hatred in your hearts, and so do I. And here's how I know that this is true. The seed of hatred is jealousy. Think about Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he was jealous. And that story is repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible and throughout our lives. Where does hatred come from? It comes from jealousy. Where does jealousy come from? The seeds of jealousy are comparison and competition, and you and I do this all the time. It's so constant, it's with us all the time, that it's almost like it's the framework with which we view the entire world. How do I compare to so-and-so? How do I compare to so-and-so? Am I better? Am I less? We live it all the time. Just a quick example. Have you ever, in the secret of your heart, secretly wished for somebody else to have a setback? And even I'm talking about a friend or somebody in your family, someone you love. Have you ever secretly wished everything's going so well for them, I'd kind of like something to happen to them, take them down a notch. 
Have you ever had that wicked thought? Yes, you have. So have I. Have you ever seen it happen? Somebody experiences a financial setback or is having trouble in their marriage or one of their kids starts spiraling out of control and, and there's a part of you that says, good. Good that it's them and not me and, and I love them, but this shows that I'm actually better than them. I've, I've done it right. I, I, I've done this, this, or that. I've, I've properly managed my finances. I've raised my children better than they have. I've done my professional life better than they, they have. Because we're always comparing and we're always competing because we want to know, am I doing it right? Have I got it right? And it's nothing more complicated than just the grown-up version of the little kids on the playground calling names and doing put-downs because they want to feel better about themselves. <laughs> we all do this. We all have hatred in our hearts. And it's nothing more than just simple, straight-up selfishness. Self-focus, it's conceit. That's what it's called. And we can't get rid of it. Love sounds easy, but it's actually the hardest thing. To love like God loves, it's the hardest thing in the world because we are selfish and self-centered. And more bad news for you. You can't say, oh, okay, yeah, that's true. I'm going to try harder not to be selfish and self-centered. You can't do that. You cannot try harder to love like God loves. Well, try. <laughs> you will fail. The only way through is repentance. Acknowledging and confessing, I, I am utterly selfish. I am and I didn't even realize the depth of my selfishness. I'm seeing it now. I am selfish, self-focused, self-centered. And I am sorry. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then we go to the cross. And we see on the cross the only man who was ever perfectly others-oriented, perfectly self-sacrificial, giving till it hurts, and actually in that moment laying down his life for those who hated him and opposed him. And we say, that love is not in me. But Holy Spirit, would you take that same love and would you put it in my heart? That's the only way that we can begin to love like God loves when we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, it's why Paul says in Romans, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Praise God. Because we know we belong to him if our whole aim in life is to care for others. So with the final minutes here, I want to give us three possible ways that you could do that this week. They probably won't all apply to you, and I encourage you to just Pick the one that seems to make the most sense to you. But here's three possible ways to respond. To take care of others, I want you to be like Bob. I'll call him Bob because it's a pretty general, common name. Um, it also might actually be his name, but I didn't say that. Uh, maybe th this is a Bob who is retired. He's an older gentleman in our congregation. And when you're with Bob, you get this feeling that he's not really hung up on himself. He's really interested in you. He's totally focused on you. And he's decided to take the gift of his retirement, the time that he has, to, to adopt that mentality of, I exist for you. I'm here for you. Whatever your needs are, let me meet them. So he took me to breakfast to bless me and to say, hey, Brett, how can I help you? You just tell me. And while we were at the restaurant, we saw another young person at church who said, hey, Bob. And I said, oh, you know, Bob. And she said, yeah, he helps me out all the time. Later that week, a different young woman has said, yeah, he helped me go buy a car because I'm, I'm young, I'm single, I didn't want to buy a car on my own. And, and Bob said, uh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. 
Two other guys I know who bought houses said, yeah, he was over helping us lay down the floor or tear stuff out. It's everywhere I'm turning. Here's Bob, loving like God loves, saying, I'm going to spend my life for others. So here's the first idea. Be like Bob. If you're in a res group and you've got that cross-generational gift, someone who's a little bit older than you, somebody who's a little bit younger than you, attach yourselves to one another. Serve one another. Find out how you can bless the other generations like, like Bob is doing for all of us young folks. All right, number two. You could take care of somebody by giving them a financial gift. All right, so back to what I was saying earlier, that generosity sharing what we have and even giving money away is one of the clearest, simplest, easy ways. Well, not easy. Clearest, simplest way to break into this love that God has for us. And oftentimes I'll counsel people and I'll say this to you and I know there are some of you that will not like this, but if you're in a spiritual rut, you're kind of stuck, one thing that might be able to unlock that is for you to give a significant gift. Give away some money to somebody who needs it more than you. And if you're thinking, well, that's convenient because Resurrection has just been asking for money. Fine, don't give it to Resurrection. Give it to somebody else who needs it more than you. And I, I promise you, things will change. Your heart will be unlocked. I told a young guy to do that, and he came back to me later. He said, my fiance just broke up with me this week, <laughs> which was exactly what needed to happen. <laughs> They're both now married to other people that they should be married to. All right, number three. We've talked a lot about loving your enemy. So there may be some of you here who if I say, who are your enemies? You're like, yep, I could write you a list. Those who are opposing me right now. Quite frankly, I'm opposing them. And likely, they're probably other Christians. That's just my hunch. So here's how you can take care of an enemy. Give them something this week. Maybe it's just a note, a word of encouragement. Maybe it's a small gift, just a way to say, I do love you. For sure, you can commit every day this week to pray for them and to pray blessings upon them. And if you get like 10 notes this week from people saying they love you, uh, maybe something needs to change in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, let us adopt this mindset, this mentality that I exist for others. I am here for you. Because if you make it your aim to care for others, that is the greatest proof that you belong to God. You get it. And of course, as you're doing this, let us always remember that this is what God does for us, right? We love because he first loved us. And so there's some of you this morning that you just need to receive this word that God says to you, take care of others and I will take care of you. Believe that. And you even need to know that he says, it's my joy to take care of you. I love taking care of you. So may we receive the love that God has for us. May it overflow so that we love one another as Christ loved us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.